0: Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast made by Internal Medicine Residents, meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. This week, we have a special episode for you, where we sit down with staff physician Dr. Isaac Bogage to talk about the novel coronavirus and what learners need to know.
1: Hi, everyone. Today we have a special guest with us, Dr. Isaac Bogosh. He's an infectious disease specialist from the University of Toronto, and he practices out of Toronto General Hospital. Dr. Bogosh, thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to do this podcast with us.
0: Oh, of course. Not a problem at all.
1: All right. So just to begin and to cover the basics, what exactly is the coronavirus
0: Okay, so we have to timestamp every conversation we have because things are changing really quickly with this epidemic. We know coronaviruses are a big family of viruses. There's a million different types of coronaviruses. They range from the very mild end of the spectrum, like coronaviruses that cause the common cold, all the way to the more severe end of the spectrum, like coronaviruses that cause SARS and MERS. So lots of different types of coronaviruses. Still too soon to tell About this one, but this will probably land somewhere in the middle on the spectrum of severity and probably actually closer to the milder end when I bet when we see all the dust settle at the end of the day.
1: And so, what is it exactly about this coronavirus in particular that's causing such concern all around the world?
0: Well, I mean, it's an epidemic, and this is one of these things where we say this is a zoonotic infection. So, you know, it started probably in a market in uh, Wuhan, China, and, uh, you know, it was likely— uh, you know, transmitted from a non-human animal to uh, to a human, rapidly spread throughout uh, Wuhan and then Hubei province. And then looks like it's in China. Now it's getting exported to uh, places internationally. So, you know, you can see why people would raise an eyebrow when, uh, when we start to see a new infection that we've never seen before spread uh, throughout a country. And, and, you know, we're at the early phases of seeing this spread internationally. So, you know, Obviously, uh, people are, are concerned, and, and uh, you know it's happened before, right? We've seen SARS, MERS, Zika, chikungunya, lots of epidemics over the last few years, H1N1. Uh, so we've got to be careful, of course.
1: So within Canada, how is Canada sort of at large screening for the coronavirus? So, I
0: mean, yeah, I mean, again, I'm on a date stamp this. We're talking on uh, February 5th, I believe. Uh, So, you know, right now, as at the the current state, uh, uh, you know, Canada is screening for this. We have uh, screening at ports of entry, major ports of entry, uh, and uh, people arriving from China, will have uh, screening questionnaires. Really, these are—I think this is helpful, right? It, it basically informs people. You know, if you come down with signs and symptoms uh, suggestive of a coronavirus infection—so fever, cough, shortness of breath—here's where you go, and here's what you should do. Uh, you, know, you know, the screening at the airports. So of course, we're not going to catch people with the infection. There's an incubation period, and you got to get lucky to get people at the airport while they're having active symptoms. You know, you, most of the time, people are going to be. Uh, in an incubation period, uh, or maybe have such mild symptoms that they won't even report it. So, so really, the key thing for airport screening is to really um, inform people and educate people of what to do if they do come down with uh, with the infection. And you know, it, it's been working; it's been working well. I mean, we've had, uh, a, I would say, a generally informed public. So, we've had a lot of cases in Canada that have been suspected for this, and uh, most of them have been ruled out uh, as of today. There's been five cases, three in Ontario and two in British Columbia, Uh, you know, and people were put identified early, put into precautions early. Contact tracing was done. Uh, You know, labs were sent to the appropriate places. They were able to rule in infection relatively quickly. So, you know, I think uh, at the federal, provincial, city and also the hospital level, things have been going okay so far.
1: Right. And are they doing any type of like febrile screening for specific populations at the points of entry, or is it mostly no, just questionnaires?
0: No, no, questionnaires. They're doing that in certain places. I, I believe they're doing that in the United States and maybe one or two other countries, but uh, we're not doing that in, in Canada. And again, you know, this has been studied before, like there are, you know, there's data from Ebola virus, from uh, it's been attempted with, uh, you know, many other, H1N1, uh, it's been attempted, SARS, it's been attempted. You got to get lucky to pick up febrile people as they're walking through your port of entry. You know, most right. people, remember with, with these infections, there's an, incu- there's an incubation period. And, you know, you got to get lucky if that someone has the right signs and the right symptoms, At the exact time they're coming through the port of entry. So a lot of the times screening for fevers, you know, is not the most helpful tool. I'm not saying don't do it. I'm saying it takes a ton of resources. And if those resources are then going to be detracted from other useful clinical or public health initiatives, it's probably not worth it right uh, but but you're not you're not going to pick up a lot of people coming in with screening for fevers and again especially during the winter time in Canada influenza season you're going to get imagine you get a positive case how many false positives are you going to have so right. there's that issue of picking re- people up during the incubation period and there's the issue of positive cases and and how many of them are true positives versus uh, false positives in the sense that they might really have a fever but they have a an alternative diagnosis
1: Right. And just to sort of compare then coronavirus, this one in particular, to, for instance, the SARS epidemic or even um, influenza. So there's been a lot of campaigning now saying, you know, obviously get your flu shot. Um, you're concerned about coronavirus, but there is some version of a preventable vaccine for the for influenza that a lot of people aren't Aren't getting in the general public. (laughs) Um, How does sort of this compare to the scale and the mortality and morbidity of SARS versus influenza? And I know that some of the statistics for influenza aren't so precise. Um, But if you could give us a general picture, that'd be great.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, like, so in general, SARS was pretty, pretty nasty. And most people that were infected would have a a pretty rough go. And ultimately, at the end of the day, it had about a 10 to 11 percent mortality rate. That was higher. In elderly people, that was lower in younger people, but that's that's a that's a pretty impressive mortality rate. Uh, influenza, on the other hand, I mean, we know lots of people get infected. Unfortunately, of course, we know the vaccine, while it isn't perfect, is still the best form of protection. Uh, and we know in in Canada, every year influenza is going to hospitalize about twelve thousand ish people, and it will contribute directly or indirectly to the death of about 3000 to up to 3500 Canadians per year either directly or, or indirectly through you know an inflammatory pathway that might lead to uh, cardiovascular negative cardiovascular outcomes in, including uh, you know so so they're both you know they're they're both nasty infections of course and 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 influenza at least we have something that we can do to help either mitigate the severity or actually mitigate us getting getting this infection so that's one thing and you know how does this coronavirus stack up? So the short answer is, we don't know yet, because we don't have enough data. Uh, And if you look at the current data that's available with the number of uh, confirmed cases, and the number of of suspected cases, and the numbers of deaths, you sort of see a case fatality rate ranging from the one point high to two point low percent. But in actuality, many of us who have been following this closely think that that's probably going to drop significantly as we appreciate that there are subclinical infections and there are more and more people that probably have this infection that have mild symptoms that are just not sick enough to seek medical care. Uh, so you know, the current case fatality rate again is is around two ish percent, but in actuality, many of us feel that this will be significantly lower when more data becomes available. And certainly, there is a, an emerging narrative of uh, you know mild illness. We, the question is, what's the proportion of people that have mild illness compared to those who have more severe illness?
1: So we're going to switch gears and sort of think about this now from the resident perspective. So thinking tonight's on call for junior and senior residents, um, the first question a lot of residents had was, who should we screen? Is it really just based on travel history or are there any specific symptoms um, or basic lab abnormalities that would point you to think this person might have coronavirus?
0: I mean, the key thing here is that it is a respiratory virus, so people will primarily have respiratory syndromes, and uh, certainly there's some emerging data to suggest that. Now, of course, this overlaps with just about every other respiratory virus, and, you know, as I say, you're not going to be able to percuss your way out of this one, so, (laughs) you know, history is crucial, and currently, and I always got to be careful with my words, currently, you know, we're looking at people that have traveled to China within the last two weeks because it's got an incubation period. Uh, there's a great New England Journal study uh, with a couple hundred people and they're showing an incubation period of about five to six days, but not more than two weeks. So we say, you know, recent travel to China within two weeks and or uh, close contact with someone who may have this infection. Uh, so, for example, in Canada, in the most recent case, this uh, individual who was infected had never left Vancouver or never left British Columbia, but had several guests from Wuhan stay with her that she had close contacts with. And uh, so so it's important to remember either close, contacts, close contact with a potentially infected individual or travel to China, all within a, a 14-day period of time. And then, you know, you're looking for respiratory signs and symptoms, so fever, cough, shortness of breath. I think we're also going to see, and again, I don't have a ton of data to support this, but there's sort of emerging whispers of data showing that there might be some gastrointestinal uh, manifestations. And that's, again, not uncommon when we see... Um, uh, respiratory viruses. Sometimes people mm-hmm. also have concomitant diarrhea, as well, uh, especially with influenza. Uh, so, you know, I think we should we should be on the lookout for that. But like, as of today, I don't think we'd be screening for primary, you know, primarily gastrointestinal syndromes. Uh, I don't think that 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 would fit the bill right now. But uh, you know, I, I want to keep an open mind and stay humble as we learn more and more about this virus. So, I think the key thing is respiratory symptoms plus. Uh, travel to China within 14 days or contact with someone who may be potentially infected within 14 days.
1: Right. And at this point, are we considering it all of China or are we just thinking mostly of sort of Wuhan and the Hubei province?
0: Yeah, I mean, prim- the epidemic primarily in the Hubei province, but in all fairness, there is transmission elsewhere in China and it's difficult to know uh, how much uh, transmission there is in Hubei and also outside of Hubei, elsewhere in China. So, I mean, I think an eyebrow should go up with any, uh, you know, travel to China. And certainly that's what the current guidelines recommend. And again, anything can change. I think it's important that we follow this day by day because um, screening can change and, and travel recommendations can change. Uh, so it's it's just important to sort of timestamp these conversations and, and stay up to date.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um so another question that residents had were, what is the difference between droplet versus airborne protection? Um, are you really is this something that really needs airborne protection? Because obviously, with things like the flu, we are just using droplet. Um, so residents want to know: is there really a difference, um, and what the evidence is, if any, supporting airborne over droplet?
0: Well, currently we're using airborne and contact, uh, and I think that's I think that's a fair a fair thing to do right now. Um, you know, is droplet acceptable? Let's find out. I mean, we'll, we'll have more information soon. There's, uh, you know, never before, never have I seen the, uh, rapidity of data, you know, landing on our, you know, in our computer inboxes with, with, with uh, a new infection. I mean, for, you know, within the first two weeks of even knowing this infection even existed, the genome was sequenced and made publicly available. So we're learning about it, uh, at unprecedented paces, but uh, currently, I think the most hospitals uh, are using airborne and contact precautions, and I think that's completely reasonable. But you know, we'll, as always, adapt with the emerging data, d- depending on obviously make, ensuring that it's a, of the highest quality data, uh, and uh, and maybe that'll change. But certainly, for now, I think it's uh, appropriate.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Better safe than sorry. How is the coronavirus confirmed then? What kind of testing are we using? What's the turnaround time? Um, is there anything we need to mark specifically on the test? Um, and sort of where does it, where does it go yeah.
0: um,
1: if, we're, if we're looking for coronavirus?
0: So I'll preface this with, you know, every hospital is going to have their own protocol. So it's extremely important for people to uh, ensure that they're up to date on what their own protocols are. In general in general if you're listening in Canada uh, your hospital will have a protocol about how sampling should be done it'll likely be a nasopharyngeal swab or a throat and or a throat swab okay but check to see if there's other other samples that uh, your hospital uh, and, and lab is interested in acquiring um, uh, most samples uh, uh you, are sent to the Provincial Health Laboratory for uh, first-pass uh, testing, and then there's confirmatory testing that's performed at the National Microbiology Lab in Winnipeg. Um, the turnaround time has been very quick. I mean, it's not more than two days, and usually in about one day where you have the Provincial Laboratory results. Then it takes another day or two to get the uh, national microbiology lab results, uh, confirmatory results, as well. But uh, so the turnaround time has been extremely quick. Just and to sound like a broken record, it's extremely important to know what the protocols are at your individual hospitals. But that's sort of a general approach.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, how sensitive or specific is the test that we're using? Are there possibilities for false negatives or false positives at all?
0: Yeah, it's a great, great question. So, you know, a couple points. One, it was extremely helpful that the genome was sequenced because I think a lot of the diagnostic tests are now adapting to this. I'm not going to pretend to be a, a laboratory person because I'm not. Uh, but uh, But, you know, I don't have numbers for sensitivity and specificity, but I think they're going to end up being extraordinarily high for both. Um, And, you know, it's interesting because there was a recent case in London, Ontario, where the provincial health lab tests were negative, but the confirmatory tests at the National Microbiology Lab were positive um and at the you know some people were saying wow what does that mean and are the provincial health labs doing the right thing and the answer is yeah this is a great system uh this shows us that the system's actually working you know we have different labs doing different tests updating their tests as well uh, as the provincial health lab said that they were in the process of doing and you know i count that as a success i mean uh you know, this is why we have these different levels of testing at the Provincial Health Lab and then at the, uh, at the National Microbiology Lab. Uh, so, you know, this is, I think, with this sort of, you know, safety net of having two different labs look at these samples and using different methods of looking at these samples, we're going to have a very high sensitivity and specificity. And, uh, you know, kudos to them for setting up the system in such a way.
1: Um, Aside from sort of ABCs, vitals, you see someone in the emergency department you think might have coronavirus. Um, Is there any sort of predictions or special considerations with respect to case severity? So for instance, who needs to be hospitalized and who needs to, um, or who can go home as opposed to sort of just your general respiratory triage that you would do with patients coming with respiratory illness?
0: So, you know, I think you know, obviously, currently, of course, there's a lot of sensitivity about this particular infection. So, if people are seeing this infection, they, you know, no one goes at it alone, and you, you know, you have to number one work within the appropriate rules and regulations and policies of your individual hospital, uh, and uh, and I appreciate that these might be different all over the country. And it's just extraordinarily important to be up to date on uh, on what these are. In general, practitioners, if they suspect this, will be in touch with the infection prevention and control uh, specialists. And and there is a system of communication between the, the hospital and pre- infection prevention and control specialists with um, public health departments, either at the city level and, and, and likely the provincial level that will help facilitate uh sample acquisition and diagnostic testing to rule in or rule out infection. But like the basic clinical management of these uh, cases is going to be very similar to other respiratory tract infections. We currently don't have a, you know, true antiviral drug that is, you know, approved and licensed for this. And it's it's going to be a a clinical management would be supportive care so managing fevers managing fluid and electrolyte balances providing supplemental oxygen if necessary of course maintaining impeccable standards of infection prevention and control to prevent uh, hospital acquired infections and also liaising very closely with the infection prevention and control team and whatever teams are managing the case so it might be the Emergency department, the general internal medicine team, the infectious diseases team. So, you know, maybe the intensive care unit team in more severe cases, which we we haven't seen in Canada. Um, so, so it, you know, it. But but the key is there's going to be um, local implementation of uh, case management policies, and and it's just extremely important to brush up on on what those are at your hospitals.
1: Right, and so basic treatment then is mostly supportive. Are we using any yeah. type of Are we using any type of antiviral, so like elvotamivir no, no, or anything like that? There's no evidence no, for that at all. No,
0: no, no. Now there's certain theoretical antivirals that may work, and these are currently uh, being trialed in China. There were some observational studies showing that some of these. Um, uh, may have some effect in uh, other coronaviruses like SARS and MERS. Um, so there are some studies that are that are ongoing, but uh, but you know there's no real current uh, uh, standard of antiviral care for this as of yet.
1: So say someone needs to be intubated. Um, how should trainees approach potential intubations other than your routine sort of airborne pre- precautions that you would use?
0: So, but the key point here is, if you're not sure what you're doing, ask for help and don't do it. So first, do no harm. So you know you are never alone as in, as uh, as trainees. There's always somebody around to help. There's always someone to call. Uh, and um, and this is where, if you're not entirely sure what the protocols are for intubating a patient, uh, uh, especially in you know. In cases where there are very sensitive infection prevention and control initiatives that need to be in place, don't do it. <laughs> and and uh, and Get help. <laughs> uh, yeah, a hundred percent as always. But that and and that holds true for all of residency. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you're never there alone, despite what some residents might think. Staff is either physically there or a phone call away. Yeah. Uh, and uh, regardless of what service people are on, and uh, there's always staff available in the hospital available mm-hmm. to help, you know, it, be it, maybe they're on a different service, but there's always staff available. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, obviously you're not alone. So if you, if you don't know, and you're not trained to do it, don't do it.
1: Is it assumed that basically, if someone gets coronavirus, gets treated, symptoms resolve, that they are generally then, if they're asymptomatic, they are no longer contagious at that point?
0: So, if someone gets the infection and then recovers, you know, we, first of all, there there actually was some neat data that I saw today uh, from the few cases in Germany where people were sick and then they just started measuring virus from these individuals. And, you know, like I think other respiratory viruses, there may be some viral shedding for a few days afterward, which, which is, you know, no one would be surprised if, if that's the case. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know, people will be followed closely, current, currently, people will be followed closely by public health. And uh, I believe, you know, different public health teams might have different policies, but they might be looking for viral shedding before people should uh, come out of, uh, you know, house-based uh, rest and, and, I mean, quarantine until they can uh, come out of that. So, you know, they wanna, some, I, I can't speak on um, about what the policy is across different uh, jurisdictions, but I know some places are looking for two negative swabs before they say you can come out of uh, home-based quarantine.
1: Okay, last question. What's the sure. difference between an epidemic and a pandemic?
0: Epidemic is, you know, basically an above-normal number of cases of something uh, that that would be expected. Uh, pandemic is essentially when we start. So, is this a pandemic as of uh, what is it? February fifth, two thousand and twenty. No, it is not. Uh, could it be a pandemic? Sure. I mean, anything can happen. No one, no one, no one's entirely sure what direction this is going to take. But if you start to see sustained chains of transmission outside of China in other international settings, so multiple sustained chains of transmission uh, in many places outside of the uh, area of onset, you know, those are those are clues that it's that it's turning into a pandemic. We'd like to say a huge thank you to Dr. Bogic for taking the time to speak with us about this today. This episode was recorded and produced by Allison Lai. The Internet Work series was created by Allison Lai and developed by Zara Morali and Leia Karianopoulos. This project is overseen by Dr. Daniel Brandt Vegas, music by Lachlan Visantha Moen. As always, don't forget to check out our website, www.theinternetwork.com, for infographics and more resources. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again soon.